This is the All In Gospel Podcast, where we go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, every week. If you like the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or join us at allingospel.com. Enjoy your Bible study. Blessings. All right, so we're going to be in Exodus 35, if you want to get there in your Bibles. Um, I don't need to do a lot of context because most of the people here tonight, you've been here for most of Exodus. So um, we are still at this point talking to uh, or Moses has heard from the Lord. He went back. There was the golden calf thing. They messed up right away and broke the covenant. And then Moses goes back and talks to the Lord and, and intercedes in prayer and the Lord responds to that prayer, and we're going to have a covenant between God and the people of Israel. And at this point, Moses is now going back to the people, and he's going to do it. What's nice about this is we're wrapping up the chapter, the the last few chapters of Exodus really are the end of the story. And we're at the end of the story. And the end of the story is now they're going to actually do something. Because they haven't done anything in, what, 15 chapters? There's been a conversation that's gone back and forth, but the narrative... You know, they're sitting at the bottom of Mount Sinai and they're not moving anywhere and whatnot. So uh, it's time to get to work. So verse one, we have Sabbath regulations. Then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together. And he said to them, these are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Work shall be done for six days, but on the seventh day, it shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kinder no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Um, so these are the words. There is a plan. And it occurred to me, like, I think sometimes that, like when you build with Legos, you start with the base of whatever you're building, and you kind of build out from there, and you attach things to it. And at this point, there's a foundation to everything God wants for the people of Israel. And the foundation, how he's going to build out from that, is this idea of Sabbath. This is not the first time we've heard of Sabbath in the Exodus, right? It's come up multiple times. It's a big deal. And a couple other thoughts about Sabbath. And, and again, I'm, there's not much to add to it from what we've already talked about. But in this particular verse, it says, Work shall be done for six days, but on the seventh day it shall be holy for you. A lot of times we think of Sabbath as well, that seventh day should be kept as a day of rest or a holy day. An equal part of the commandment here is that you should work for six days, and we don't always think of that. And in fact, in America, we work generally we work for five days, um, and that's not the command of God. So in one of those things, no matter what culture you're in, um, sometimes what the Word of God says doesn't fit with the culture you live in. And the culture we live in says work for five days, and then you get two days of rest, and if you want to give one of those to the Lord, you can. Um, but the Bible says you work for six days and then you rest on the last one. It's the fourth commandment. It's not optional. God sets and ordains the time for the week um, and what we should do. The kindling no fire piece. Uh, fire would be not for heat in the Middle East, except for maybe at night you might do some of that. But a lot of times the tents would get pretty warm because they, they got the goat's, goat's hair on them. Fire in this context, and especially when they're talking about work, fire has to do with construction, metalworking, cooking, um, it's not necessarily a tool for heat. It's a tool for doing the work of the tabernacle. So Moses just got done telling them about this tabernacle that they're going to build. Here's the words of the Lord. And he basically says, but you're not going to do that work on a Sunday. Dwellings in verse 3. 
um, is not like a house dwelling. It's more like a habitation or a sojourn. So the dwellings in that particular passage, the majority of the times that words get used in the Bible, it's talking about where you've settled or where you've set your tents. So your dwelling is where you're dwelling at the time versus your house. Um, so it's not a personal thing. It's a national thing. Um, however, that particular verse is really interesting. If you look at Jewish traditions and cultures that has gotten expanded through rabbinical law. Um, and one pastor I listened to even mentioned that if you go to Israel, one of the things you'll notice is that there's some buildings where they shut the elevators down on a Sunday or on Sabbath, which is Saturday, right? Because to press the button in the elevator is to spark a little electronic and that's to kindle a fire as you're doing that. So all electronics get shut down on the Sabbath. So if you really want to follow that to the letter, that's one way to do it. I don't think it's a biblical way to do it. It's We have people that interpret the Bible in weird ways. But the point here is you're not supposed to essentially be firing up your blacksmithing forge on a Sabbath. You're supposed to take a break from it. Um, another thought about Sabbath as we wrap up the book of Exodus is that we're going to go forward into Leviticus, like Leviticus 23 and Numbers 28, where they actually talk about priests doing work on the Sabbath, which then make puts this into context. This isn't about shutting down your elevators. This is about not doing this work over here, but doing work that's set aside for God. Um, and that should be that kind of thing. So the rest in the words of God, um, and we submit our time to it. Offerings for the tabernacle. And Moses spoke to all the congregation. When it starts out with, and Moses spoke, it's kind of like we're getting these kind of summary notes at the end. So the beginning of verse one, then Moses gathered, and now and Moses spoke. These are kind of setting off these sections. So offerings for the tabernacle. Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel saying, this is the thing which the Lord commanded saying, take from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord, gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and the stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate and and in the breastplate so it's time to get to work Moses says here's all the stuff we need we've already seen the list we've already gone through much of those many of those materials and what they're for I on this part it's I think important to note or interesting to note Moses doesn't say how much he doesn't say we need this many barrels of this and this many feet of this he doesn't give an amount. Um, what he does specify is that it has to be given out of a willing heart. Um, so we have this kind of relationship where God, Moses trusts that God's going to talk to people individually to tell them how much they should give. And when that happens, I think we see God's abundance. So here's a plan. Give to God what's God's, do your Sabbath, and then do your work and give your offering. So you've got two major components that are the foundation or base of what the nation of Israel will be. And then the articles of the tabernacle show up, verse 10. All who are gifted artisans among you shall come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent, its covering, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets, the ark and its poles with the mercy seat, the veil of the covering, the table and the poles, all the utensils, and the showbread, 
I like that Showbread's in the list because they replace it every week, but they list it like it's a thing that's going to be part of, like a permanent thing. Also, the lampstand for the light, its utensils, its lamps, the oil for the light, the incense altar, its poles, the anointing oil, the sweet incense, the screen for the door at the entrance of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles, all its utensils, the laver and its base, the hangings of the court, its pillars, their sockets, and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court, and their cords, the garments of ministry for ministering in the holy place, and the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests. <sighs> That's the list. That's what we've just been doing for the last three months, right? It's a summative and I'm not going to go through every one of those pieces and go through them because you can always go to the All In Gospel website and you can go back and listen to those teachings if you want to. Um, but you have the whole formula getting laid out again. Um, and I thought this might be a nice time to, as you get this whole list, this summary of all the pieces that need to be there, all of these are not accidental. They're important to God, which is why he repeats them. And we're going to see them repeated again. And again, and as you go through the Old Testament, you see this list repeated a lot. Something about this list, if we want to know how to live with God and love God and relate to God, this is a list we should have in our imagination. And we should know something about all these kinds of things. Um, because it helps us enter the holiness of Jesus and understand Jesus. And I'm not the only one saying that. I'm going to go to Hebrews here in a second. But in Hebrews 10, they lay out this whole formula again. Only it's a post-Jesus person writing about it, whoever the author of Hebrews is, trying to say all of this is really important because it represents our relationship with Christ. Our hearts get sprinkled, and that kind of goes with the bronze altar of atonement. It's going to talk about our bodies getting washed in the laver, the basin. There's that washing that happens. Then you hold your faith, which is the tabernacle, that faith that there's something beautiful inside that tent, that there's something waiting for us on the other side of the screen, on the veil. Then you assemble together. There's a church. There's a courtyard where assembly happens and people live. And all of these pieces are part of our life with Christ. Then you keep the law. You exhort one another and you live lawfully. You keep the Sabbath. You give your offerings to the Lord. And these pieces all come together to kind of represent a life of faith. So Exodus, or I'm sorry, Hebrews 10 verse 19 Thinking of the tabernacle and holding that in your imagination, listen to what it says in Hebrews. Therefore, brethren, having the boldness to enter the holiness, holiest of by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he was for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The New Testament completes the Old Testament. The Old Testament provides an image for what's going on in the New Testament. Those references to the veil, to the washing, all of these pieces are part of God's plan for us and they're part of how it works. Verse 20, And 
all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. <laughs> Left alone, that sounds like a really sad ending to the book, <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, see you, Moses. Um, so it's for me, I try to read these sentence by sentence as I go through, and that one just kind of sent me for a loop because I'm like, wait a second. Then everyone came whose heart was stirred. Let me say this about 20. Moses not a high-pressure salesman because he has them all assembled, gives them all this stuff. He could have said, show me your stuff right now. There's, I remember Tony Campolo was an evangelist back when we were young, and he would go into rooms full of people and he'd say, pull out your wallet right now. Whatever cash you have in there, if you got robbed tonight, would you still survive and would you be okay? If all the cash that was in your wallet was gone, would you make it? Because there's people in the world that are starving right now. Would you go without a meal because you lost all that cash? And people would be like, no, because you do this in suburban America. And you say, good, so take all that cash out of your wallet and put it into the offering plate and let's get some people fed and taken care of them. Really high pressure guy. And I think there's places for that sometimes because he's kind of calling people out on their greed a little bit. Um, on the other hand, Moses is not that guy. Moses is like, okay, you can all go home because he wants a willing heart. Try to count the number of times you hear the concept of free will or willing offering or... You know, it's it seems like that seems to be a key point of what's going on here. And Moses just lets people go home and doesn't do the high pressure sale. Verse 21, then everyone came whose heart was stirred and everyone whose spirit was willing. And they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting for all its service and for the holy garments. They came, both men and women as many as had a willing heart, and they brought earrings and nose rings, rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold, that is, every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord, and every man with whom was found blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, red skins of lambs, and badger skins, and brought them. This means that most of what they had for the tabernacle they'd hauled out of Egypt, right? This is the stuff they took out of people's houses. I'll take that blue thread, thank you. And they were just sitting on these things and hoarding them. Everyone who offered an offering of silver or bronze brought the Lord's offering. And everyone with whom was found acacia wood or any work for of the service brought it. All the women who were gifted artisans spun yarn with their hands and brought what they had spun of blue, purple, and scarlet and fine linen. And all the women whose hearts were stirred with wisdom spun yarns, yarn of goat's hair. And the rulers who brought onyx stones and the stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate and the spices for the oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. The children of Israel brought a free will offering to the Lord, all the men and women whose hearts were willing to bring material for all kinds of work, which the Lord by the hand of Moses had commanded to be done. So the people of Israel had tried sin. They did the golden calf. They tried going back to the ways of Egypt. And the consequence of that was death. People died because of that, right? Because God wanted those people that initiated that gone. Now they've seen the light of God, the law, and Moses. And they believe that there's a promise of a better life on the other side of it. Because the people of Israel at this point have followed a powerful God. But now they're doing what God's asked them to do. And there's a promise of a life that's going to be more peaceful. That's still the choice today. You can try sin if you want to, that opportunity is there, or you can try just doing what God's asked you to do and live a holy life. There's a huge blessing in living a holy life, but it's not a blessing that happens immediately. In fact, it's 
hard there's kind of a prosperity gospel that's out there and and you know by this point I'm not a huge proponent of that. In fact, I think the Bible kind of promises hardship. If you really want to follow the Lord, there will be trials, there will be temptations. Life is hard and it's tough and it's difficult and there's struggles and in like in uncertainties and things that you have to wrestle with. We wrestle with our own flesh, Paul says. All of these things are there, but there's still this idea that there's a promise that if we do these things, God will fulfill us in a different kind of way. And everything we do for the Spirit is either done because we're trying to bribe God, which I don't think that's what's going on here. The willing hearts was a huge theme. Or you're just doing it because your heart loves the Lord and you want to give to the Lord what's the Lord's. And the Lord kind of provided that looting in Egypt anyways, so they... Easy come, easy go. I love the fact that some of the people grabbed like opals <laughs> and gemstones and that sort of thing. Um, and notice that in verse 27, it was the rulers that had brought, grabbed those things. So the rulers give the most expensive gifts. And that's the way to lead. If you're going to lead or be a leader of people, you should give the largest sacrifice, right? The being a leader is sometimes means you give more than other people give to what you're doing. So the people of Israel, that's starting to happen. They're not leading them to go worship a golden calf. They're leading them to serve and worship the Lord. So they're pointing them in the right direction. Um, the other major theme in that section, verses 21 through 29, first of all, the willingness is a huge theme. But there's another one there, another aspect that's emphasized, and you maybe picked up on it. They keep saying that all, everyone, all the women, all the men, that there's this universal unity in service to God that's going on in Israel right now. Something has changed in their hearts. There isn't division. They're not arguing. They're not complaining. There's a season or a moment in the history of Israel where they're all of one mind and they're all of one heart. And it's not about taking things anymore. It's about giving things. And isn't that the spirit of Christmas? So they're giving and that's part of the relationship with God. And I think that's part of how God still works today. There's nothing that God needs from us. That's why I think the hard pressure campaigns from religious people are really disingenuous because God actually doesn't need our money. He doesn't need anything from us. But when we give to God, our hearts are prepared to be in relationship with God. So if they're faithful, God draws near to them. And it's mirrored in the New Testament too, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Every man according to as he's purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. There's the state of the heart when we give things away cheerfully that draws us closer to God. And that's just the, at the end of the day, that's how that works. God could have miraculously made all this stuff appear in nice little stockpiles at the building site. That's how it works in my computer games. Mm -hmm. When you want things, so they just kind of stockpile in your little thing if you wait long enough. And God didn't do that. He actually wanted people to participate in his work on earth. I think that's the coolest part about what's going on today is when we work for God and when we're working in his kingdom, it's our privilege to work in those environments and to do things for God. It's not what we get, it's what we can offer. Oh, that all churchgoers would do that for their pastors. I'm guessing, Zach, your dad probably has thoughts on that. But there's people that come into churches and they want to know what they'll get from the church. Hmm. And that's just the wrong attitude. You should come to a church and look around and see what needs to be done. And how can you serve in that church? How can you help that church?
verse 30. And Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord is called by name Bezalel, which means in the shadow of God, son of Uri, son of Hur, son of, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting and carving wood, and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. So of the major characters of the Bible from Genesis to this point, we have not gotten that many characters in the Bible. There's been some lists of people that we haven't met, but the fact that the Bible names the first artist this early on and with this much prominence, there's Moses, there's Aaron, there's Miriam, there's Joshua, there's, um, oh, who's the other guy that held up his arms? Was it her? Her, yeah. Yeah, so this guy's grandpa. And now there's Bezalel, the artist, who's a major character in the nation of Israel. Oh, what nation to put artists at that high a prominence in their country. So we have the first named artist in the Bible. What's special here about their art is not how we see art today and how the world sees art today. For When we look at artists, we think of their skill, their talent, their ingenuity, and their creativity, right? The Bible doesn't seem to call that the primary attribute of an artist. The primary attribute of the artist is that God, in verse 31, has filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding. That a good artist has wisdom and knowledge and understanding and they communicate something through their art that they bring deeper truths through what they're doing visually. And I think that's kind of neat. So artists should then, if you want to be a great artist and you want your artistry to grow, you want your musicianship to grow, your visual arts to grow, I think it stands to reason what you should be praying for is wisdom and understanding, that you get the ideas for your art and that those are inspired by God and brought to you by God himself. That will help you do. If you want to do anything of note or anything that's worthy, because we don't hear anything about Bezalel's work prior to the temple, but we see him named here, and when he's working for God, he's doing something that'll last. So right after the first artist in the Bible, we get the first teacher in the Bible. And he had put in his heart the ability to teach. And in him, Ahiluyab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, and he filled them with the skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer and the tapestry maker in blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine linen and of the weaver and those who do every work and those who design artistic works. The first teacher was an art teacher, and that was the first subject area that got taught. Other, unless you want to count Moses teaching the people of Israel. Um, but anyways, I thought Alyssa would like that thought. But we have this first teacher in the Bible and the uh, the really like fourth or fifth in command of the nation at this point, right? Being named like that. So, and again, what's special about this teacher, they don't point out their classroom management. They don't point out their amazing curriculum design. There's nothing in here about pedagogy. There's none of that. What defines a great teacher, verse 34, is that God has put in his heart the ability to teach. If you wanna be a great teacher, you should pray for God to put that into your heart and give you the ability to do it. Because frankly, it's an impossible job. If you want to be a great artist, it's an impossible job without the wisdom and understanding of God. And I think we can take with these two professions, I think we can extrapolate that a little bit and say, if you want to be a great artist or if you want to be a great 
HR manager or if you want to be a great engineer or if you want to be a great homemaker or a great appraiser um, or a great bus driver, Grant. If you want to be great at anything, you should pray that God gives you the spirit to do that. So there's a spirit to sacrifice some time in the Sabbath. There's a spirit of willingness that should be a generous heart that gives your gifts to God. And there's a spirit of wisdom and understanding that goes into the artistry that gets done in the workmanship. And there's a spirit that puts into the heart the ability to teach into the heart of a teacher. So anyways, just a thought. That's the end of that chapter. And this was only 24 minutes. So we're going to do two chapters. So the chapter break, remember these numbers and letters aren't original to the Bible. The scroll would have just kept going. And you can see with the word and at the beginning of verse chapter 36, this just keeps going, right? Still, Moses is still then talking to the children of Israel. We know that he's talking from Exodus 3530. And Bezalel and Ahiliab and the gifted artisan in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. So now we see the people giving way more than what has to be given. So when God moves amongst the people, we're going to see this to be a kind of a thing that happens. Then Moses called Bezalel and Ahiliab, and every gifted artisan in whose in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work. And they received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for for the work of the service and making of this of making the sanctuary. So they're building the tabernacle now. Finally, they're getting to work. So they continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. So they're learning. If they're doing it every morning, they don't just do it that once after Moses gave his big speech. They actually keep doing it because I think they figure out that it feels pretty good to give things to God's church. And it sets your heart in the right place. It helps you not be greedy. Um, it does something that's kind of worry. It, it takes worry away because if you're trusting in the Lord, you don't have to worry as much. So they, I think the people start wanting to give more. Not only did I get rid of that large onyx stone and I felt great doing it, I can now get rid of my sapphire stone and I can get rid of all these other things too. And they do it. And they know that it's going to get used for the Lord's kingdom. It's not getting used to build some fifth campus of a church or something like that. It's getting used to build the first tabernacle in the history of the world. So it's kind of a new work that's getting done. Then verse four, all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came each from the work he was doing. And they spoke to Moses saying, the people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. Well, this is interesting. So God gave the, a commandment, or I'm sorry, Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done, indeed too much. This is kind of how God God works. There's abundance. When things are going to be done, when God is in it, there's something to be there. When God guides, God provides. Um, that's not me. That's Chuck Smith. But it's just kind of a law of the universe. When God wants something to happen, you don't see people becoming beggars. There's fruitfulness in God's work, right? Matthew 14, 6 through 20, 16 through 21 you have a very similar thing happening. God doesn't have to do the abundance, but he does it to show people there's more than enough, right? Jesus said to them, you don't need to go away. 
you just need to give them something to eat. And they said to him, we only have five loaves and two fish. You've heard this story, right? It's a good reminder. And he said, bring them here to me. And then he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass. And he took five loaves and the two fish and looked up to heaven. He blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and they were all and were filled and they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So there's two principles here. God, principle one in both New and Old Testament, God takes a very small amount from human beings, right? And then he makes and multiplies it and makes it more valuable than it ever was. Principle number two, God stops taking when there's enough, right? He doesn't continue to ask for more loaves and fishes for more little kids walking by. He just takes what's needed to make the multiplication happen. And we never see this today. Name one church that just says, okay, we don't need you to take tithes anymore. We've got enough for the year. We're done. We just don't do this anymore. It's almost unheard of. In any ministry, we're always in fundraising mode. And of course, for the radio stations right now, for Christian radio, it's like fundraising season. And you just sit there and think, boy, that if you need to beg that hard to keep going, maybe it's time to shut up, shut the doors, right? Because when God's in a ministry, it doesn't generally have to beg for money. Principle number three, God's people are organized enough as all these people come back to Moses and say, we have what we need. That means that they have plans and orderly ministry going on to where they know when they have enough because they're not done building the tabernacle yet, but they know that they're sufficient. And I think that's an amazing thing. In fact, the, the goal is sufficiency, which in the Hebrew means enough according to abundance. In other words, when it says we have enough or we have what's sufficient, you have more than enough. So we're good and we're, we're, we're fine and we have what we need. And I think principle four is the, the coolest one. This is kind of exciting that they have to collect all these things from a bunch of people that are kind of refugees and they have more than enough. There's an abundance of gold and silver and bronze and dyes and lambskins and leathers and they have all of these things and it's kind of exciting it's a thrilling moment so these last few verses are kind of giving us a kind of an end of exodus thing like here's the people of israel working together there's abundance to do god's work and suddenly as a nation they're doing all the right thing and they had all the craftsmen which means each of the different areas they had abundance not just in one material but in all the materials and that's an, an emphasis. At the very end, it says, indeed, too much, um, which is a different word from sufficient, which we saw earlier in the passage. Um, this word is yathar, which means to jut over or the leftovers, which is similar to the leftovers are what are gathered in the loaves and fishes scene with Jesus. It wasn't full breads or full things of bread. It was they ate and they were filled and they took up the fragments that remained were abundant or the leftovers. So that last phrase indeed too much is kind of an, an exclamation point on the end they had more than what they needed and it should be read like that there's some enthusiasm here at the end then they build the tabernacle um, and it's happening and we've spent months getting to this point and going through the word right but here we are and they're going to build it verse 8 then all the gifted artisans among them who worked on the tabernacle made 10 curtains woven of linen and of blue, purple, and scarlet thread with artistic des designs of cherubim they made them. 
The length of each curtain was 28 cubits, and the width of each curtain was 4 cubits. And the curtains were all the same size, which seems to be a point that you have to write about because that's an impressive thing. Um, and it is kind of impressive. You know, if you're just knitting a blanket to get everything the same size, it takes a little planning and work. They're all the same size. And he coupled five curtains to one another and five other curtains that he coupled to one another. And he made loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain on the selvage of one set. Likewise, he did on the outer edge of the outer curtain on the second set. 50 loops he made on one curtain and 50 loops he made on the edge of the curtain on the end of the second set. And the loops held together to one curtain. This should sound familiar. We've read through this when God gave these instructions to Moses. And what we're seeing here, really the main point is, they followed God's directions to the letter. They did it how God wanted it to be done. And he made 50 clasps of gold and coupled the curtains to one another with the clasps that it might be one tabernacle. And he made curtains of goat's hair for the tent over the tabernacle. He made 11 curtains and the length of each curtain was 30 cubits and the width of each curtain was four cubits and the 11 curtains were the same size, same size. And he coupled the five curtains by themselves and the six, cur six curtains by themselves. And he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is the outermost in one set and 50 loops he made on the edge of the curtain on the second set. And he also made 50 bronze clasps of the, the couple of the tent together that it might be one. Then he made a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red and a covering of the badger skins above that. This is like just a stop because we're going to read another few paragraphs a lot like this. This is kind of like rolling the credits at the end of the movie. You know what I mean? Nobody actually reads all the credits. It's hard. And this is where people like, st I think this is here to get the light of heart to stop reading the Bible. If you're just a fair weather Bible reader, you're going to get to this and get really bored, right? And it's just like the credits at the end of the movie. The only reason you sit through those credits is because you think there's going to be a cut scene at the end, <laughs> right? There's going to be something at the end. And the people that are kind of dedicated are going to plow through this because we want to know what those cut scenes are at the end. We'll get there eventually, but not tonight. Verse 20. For the tabernacle, he made the boards of acacia wood standing upright. The length of each board was 10 cubits. The width of each board was a cubit and a half. Each board had two tendons for binding to one another. Thus he made for all the boards of the tabernacle. And he made boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side. 40 sockets of silver he made to go under the 20 boards, two sockets under each of the boards for its two tendons. And for the other side of the tabernacle, the north side, he made 20 boards and their 40 sockets of silver and two sockets under each of those boards. For the west side of the tabernacle, he made six boards. And he also made two boards for the back corners of the tabernacle, and they were coupled at the bottom and coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus he made both of them for the two corners. So there were eight boards and their sockets, 16 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. And he made bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards on the tabernacle on the far west side westward. And he made the middle bar to pass through the boards from one end to the other. He overlaid the boards with gold, made their rings of gold to be holders for the bars, and overlaid the bars with gold. And he made, so while we're reading through this whole thing, time is passing, right? This is weeks and months of work just getting done. And it's almost like they're listing things off as they complete them, like a checklist of sorts. They made a, and he made a blue veil or a veil of blue, verse 35, purple and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It was worked with artistic design of cherubim. 
He made it four pillars of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and their hooks of gold and cast four sockets of silver for them. And he made the screen for the tabernacle door of purple, blue and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by the weaver and its five pillars with their hooks. And he overlaid the capitals and their rings with gold, but their five sockets were bronze. I'm really tempted to keep going, but this is what we have for next week. <laughs> we'll wrap up. There's really in the next three chapters, there's going to be two little cutscenes, right? That give us just one more little thing about what's going on. One more kind of instruction or image, but we're getting towards the end. We're rolling the credits next week. My thought is we're kind of in the middle of the Christmas busyness season. And I know that Alyssa and Zach are gone and we've had pretty small groups here in the holidays. So we're going to finish it up. Um, as we get into those things and do that and any more of this and I put myself to sleep and we got about two more <laughs> chapters and then of the M3 chapters there's those cutscenes which are kind of make about a chapter in the middle so I thought this was a good place to break it but basically they're going through and saying look they did everything God told them to do and from there like what will happen next like that's the future and that's how we're wrapping up Exodus this story of taking a nation of Israel from being slaves to being servants of God, doing what God's asked them to do, keeping the Sabbath, giving their offerings with a good heart, working together six days a week, doing the work of God, stopping for one day a week and, and worshiping God and ministering to the people of God. That's the life. That's what's going on. And that journey of going from slave to free is a journey of learning who God is, learning to follow God, making mistakes and doing all those kinds of things. So let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for the book of Exodus. And I know we're kind of, uh, this is part one of the wrap up for the book of Exodus, Lord. And just prepare our hearts, Lord, as we go through that same journey in life. We want to learn to follow you and we want to do it with sincerity, with truth. Um, Lord, we want to take those things about ourselves that are out of line with you and we want to line them up with your will. Teach us to do that, Lord. Give us a heart to do that. Give us the same willing hearts that these people had, where we give of our time, our life, our, our soul um, to serve your kingdom and to serve your people. Lord, help us to love one another, to be joyful in that love, and help us to be servants. Um, teach us your ways, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.